Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, this is God's word. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. We live often in a two-party world, democracy versus communism or totalitarianism, freedom versus totalitarian, liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican, or if you like the worship wars, regulative versus uh, contemporary. Uh, we deal uh, with struggles between twin conflicting ideologies, and oftentimes in our present day these uh, distinctions and divisions have run so deep and fractures uh, create more fractures that we begin to wonder if there is anyone on the same side anymore. And a remedy for this has been advanced by those in our day to find some middle way, uh, often calling themselves moderates. And all often, all they seem to do is to mix various parts of opposite extremes to try to come up with something everyone can agree upon. But the true middle way is not a mixture of extremes, but perhaps a different answer to the question altogether. Or maybe, in fact, uh, to ask the question whether or not the question of being asked is the right question to be asked at all. Here in Genesis 1-1, the question involves the nature of God and his creation. This evening, we look at the first verb that is found in the Bible, the verb created. For those of you who like Hebrew, Bereshi uh, bara, bara is the first uh, word, uh, first verb in Hebrew. In the beginning, created, God would come next. Understanding this verb is important because many erroneous views have arisen leading to heresy out of this verb. Man choosing his idols rather than the one true God will often make God less by misunderstanding willfully this verb. He will make either make something that is greater than God or so unite God to his creation that nothing uh, matters other than God. Either God becomes smaller than something else or God becomes too big for anything else to matter. Now you may think that we have two new extremes here and therefore ought to look for a middle way, but that middle way is not as moderns do in combining two extremes, but to look somewhere else. To look at Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the Bible to see God made great. A solution to the problem is not thinking less of God, but recovering the biblical revelation of the greatness of God in his creation. We see this as the first great act of Scripture, that God creates the universe. But this leads to a number of questions that people like to ask. Uh, how much was created? How was it created? And how is God related to the creation? And these questions are good ones, ones that the Bible does indeed answer. And I want us to look at these questions under the heads of the extent of creation, ex nihilo creation, and extraneous creation. What did God create? And we will refer uh, regularly, as I am one to do, to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith writes, it, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, goodness, and the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. The extent of creation of God by God is found here in the very first uh, verse. Genesis 1-1 marks this with the mirasm of heaven and earth, two bookends that uh, contain everything in between. By the earth, the original readers would have understood probably what we call a three-tier cosmology, uh, that which is under the ground, that which is at the level of the ground, and that which is in the heavens or the sky. You see this three tiers in the uh, Ten Commandments. You shall not make anything, any image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or as the earth beneath or the waters underneath the earth. And you can understand uh, by a naturalist vision without our scientific wisdom how this comes to pass. As we normally look up and see the sky, we are standing on the ground and if you dig in the ground, normally you hit water. If you look at the ocean, you begin to think that the water is below uh, the earth. This is the way that they understood the heavens and the earth. It would include everything within man's experience. It would include uh, everything within the material world. We cannot understand this statement beyond the force that it would have held for its original audience. Uh, that we cannot say that it does not include the moon and the stars. No, it includes everything. By this, in this three-story cosmology, heaven, heaven here is not understood just as the sky above, but everything above the sky. Here, heaven and earth refer to, if you will, the realms of the material and the spiritual. For heaven was the realm of God. Heaven was the realm of all spiritual beings. Heaven was the realm of everything that was seen to be mightier than man. Realities beyond uh, that extend, beyond man's understanding, beyond his scientific research, also owe their creation to God. In these two poles, everything in between, the author, God, is revealing to us that everything that exists has, owes its existence to God himself who created. Into this conception, I, I assert that we must acknowledge the spiritual beings of which we have little understanding. We use terms like angels and demons to refer to these beings and the connection between idols and demons in Scripture. So you see Leviticus 17.7, Deuteronomy 23.17, 1 Corinthians 10.20, and Revelation 9.20 suggest that what often is termed gods uh, by the heathen uh, also belong to this group of heavenly beings, possibly. And yet they are only creatures and no gods at all, powers but powerless before the Creator. And so when you see in Scripture the idea of the gods being uh, revealed there, he is, they are always described as being of less nobility than the God who created them. Man has invented many ways to confuse or hide or distort this reality. One of the fascinating things that I recognize as I was going back is that I talk about the multiverse in uh, this passage. This, I wrote this sermon way before 
uh, the madness of the multiverse and the multiverses that have spawned in the uh, comic book genre if you are a fan of the Marvel movies. And that, that idea, as much as we may like it as a novel concept, or if you actually like Marvel movies anymore, uh, we still uh, ought to recognize as, as an assault upon the reality that God created all things. For the idea of the universe is the attempt to describe everything that God has made. Man has limited its extent of the universe to the space-time existence in an effort to place things beyond the present existence and possibly beyond God's authority. When people talk about the multiverse, what they are seeming to that what they unintentionally or intentionally are doing is trying to put things outside of God's power, but there is nothing outside God's power. There is nothing outside his authority. There is nothing outside that which he has created. Whatever is, is due to God's creation. Whatever new research discovers, things we cannot even comprehend today, and whatever is, was created by God. Not only is his creation universal, but his plan is universal and his authority is universal. As the fall contained cosmological consequences, so does God's plan of redemption include all the created order. In the book Sphere Sovereignty, Abraham Kuyper famously writes, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. You often hear this summarized, is that there is no quarter of creation over which God does not rightly proclaim, Mine. For he created all, he decrees all, he will redeem all. Though man has stained the cosmos over which he was given dominion, Christ has redeemed everything that was stained. We sing of this in, uh, during Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns may. Let men their songs employ. Uh, as far as the curse is found, so is the extent of redemption, for that is the extent of creation. I see the extent of creation. And next, I want us to think about ex nihilo creation. God creates the heavens and the earth, but out of what does he create? Uh, I was taught in high school. I was introduced to this idea when I was, you know, of course, homeschooled, about the idea of creation ex nihilo, a pre- the principle that God created all things out of nothing. And as I uh, grew in my knowledge, I was added to the conception of this creation that not only did God create out of nothing, but he also created into nothing. Why do we talk about creation ex nihilo? Well, because Aristotle uh, and his thinking posits a pre-existent matter upon which the ideals or the transcendence operate. Think of a a cookie cutter. You have the dough that is there, and the cookie cutter puts its impression upon the dough and leaves its impression there and creates something new. Uh, You have to do a lot of fancy finagling to make this, uh, you know, exalt this to what Aristotle was saying. But this is the way that often people think about creation, that God has this pre-existing stuff that he is just stamping upon it uh, what he wants. In essence, modern science has not greatly departed from this ancient philosophy. Simply replace the forms of time and chance and evolution with a hearty helping of the Higgs boson fields or whatever the new idea of matter is, and you get the same result. 
The modern idea of the Big Bang Theory oftentimes is not n nothing more than, uh, I would say, an Aristot Aristotelian idea where time and chance are the forms and what was the energy is the, the stuff that makes creation. But this is not how God creates. The Bible describes creation by stating that God created things without using any pre-existing material. He used nothing to bring anything into being unless you consider his word something. And yet, how powerful is that word? There is something meaningful in the fact that God chooses to reveal to us His creative power through the use of words. We ought to find it striking because God has no vocal cords. And in an environment and universe where there is not air or where we don't know of air being there, God speaks. He anchors His creation in revelation. He anchors reality and revelation of which the Bible is the high point, giving import, such importance to the Word of God as that which reveals to us and helps us understand creation, that makes for us sinful men under creation and the universe explicable and understandable. God created out of nothing and into nothing, and that requires a definition of nothing. In the strictest understanding of nothing, it doesn't exist because uh, nothing connotes a complete absence. And I'm not uh, using, as my da dad and I joked over uh, my vacation, the theology of Julie Andr Andrews in uh, The Sound of Music, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. That's not necessarily what's going on here. But to speak of nothing means that you have to speak of nothing that is not God. For God is something. And therefore, since God is eternal, there is no such thing as nothing unless you subtract God from it. This is the way God created. We are not a, a part of God. God created into the nothingness that was not God. Where nothing was, now by God's spoken word, something exists. And something is everything that God has created. He may therefore hastily put this reality into an equation that anything without God is nothing. A creational truth that not only applies to cosmology but to our whole understanding. A creational equation that is a gospel truth that Jesus who created all things means everything. And to, to attempt to form anything without God, Jesus, our Redeemer, the Redeemer of creation, ends ultimately in nothing. And thus the gospel alone restores to man what he threw away when he rejected God in the garden. I don't think we truly grasp the severity of that deprivation. The depths of what being outside paradise means to humanity. Being out, cast outside God's presence is, in a real sense, being cast into nothingness. We who have been made for heaven cannot be satisfied by anything less than God. We were made for paradise. God created us and put man in the Garden of Eden. That is the purpose for which we are created, to fellowship with God. And when we are separated from God, we can, in a real sense, be thought of as nothing. 
Without God's favorable presence, we have nothing, no matter how we may value our present estate, no matter how we may think about ourselves and what we have in our relationships, our power, our prestige, or whatever it is we value in life, without God, it all means nothing. And why should we be satisfied with the nothing of this world when everything is yours in Christ? And yet, Christian, isn't this what we do? We exchange the creator for the creature. We value the thing made over its maker. And the Bible doesn't tell us that we can't enjoy the things that are made, the things that God created, but we can only truly enjoy them when we truly have united ourselves to the, its maker, when we see them as gifts from the giving God who gives good things to his people and blessings to them. If we value our, the creator over the creature, then we can appreciate that created being. And yet we spend our time on creatures rather than reveling in the revealed presence of the Creator. We come to this place because we are trying to reorient our minds. For the world, the flesh, and the devil, and every day of our lives seems to be dragging us to, uh, to have a vision that is basically earthbound. To think that everything here is going to satisfy us when we being made for glory it cannot unless we receive and go to glory regularly unless our lives are captured by the glory of god nothing of his reflected glory in creation will become a blessing but will become a curse and an idol can we truly appreciate the blessing of creation without first appreciating the blessing of its creator? You've seen the extent of creation, ex nihilo creation, and finally, extraneous creation. What do I mean by extraneous? I mean separate from the object to which it is attached. We may call it the creature-creator distinction. How appropriate for the relationship uh, for, between God and his creation to see them as distinct. Now, there are two inappropriate ways of viewing the relationship with God and the creation that we need to reject, for they are very popular in our day and age. Genesis teaches that God created a distinct reality from himself. And thus, it argues against uh, both pantheism and panentheism. In other words, God is not his creation, and nor is he in his creation. Now, why do I make so much noise about this? Well, to be honest, when I was young, a young whippersnapper, I used to be a moder mo moderately pantheist. A Christian pantheist, if you will, and let me explain what I mean. I, I saw creation uh, as something imagined in God's mind. It came from an analogy for, to my own experience, that the only thing that I truly created in life was my own imaginary world. Now, uh, for those of you who are more physically minded or more creatively expressive, maybe you would uh, debate that and the, the, you know, what you create or made with your hands. For me, I was, a, I was a child of the mind and I had a very vivid imagination and I could imagine that God created everything and that we were all this kind of construct that was going on in the mind of God because God was so great. Reality that we experience could be uh, merely this thought game that God was playing. That is not the way that Genesis reveals creation. 
This is uh, not uh, the way that Genesis reveals uh, what we experience. Natural pantheism arises differently from my Christian pantheonism. Uh, what do you do with a God that you can't control? What do you do with a nature uh, that exceeds your ability to surmount? You can either dismiss God or exalt creation and both unite in pantheism when, when everything is God. Uh, one of my favorite expressions is Eastern pantheistic nomenism, the idea that everything is one and everything is God. Good and evil vanish in a fantasy of the idea of the unity of balance. Conceptual ontological dualism gains an Eastern taste as opposites become the same side of the same coin. If you wonder what that means, think of the yin and the yang. If you ever, you remember that, that uh, I don't know what the, the expression of that kind of two teardrops, one black, one white, one and a, and a dot in the center of both. That's to show the unity of opposites. That dualism, the idea of light and dark, aren't really different. They are the same. Again, all is one, all is God. Modern cinema has grown more and more enamored of this idea, and you can see it in its use of anti-hero, the, understand, you know, the, the way in which it calls you to understand the villain, and even making the villain the hero, where good and evil, bright and wrong, are no longer direct opposites in conflict with one another, but really only shades of gray that everything is muddied over. But even George Lucas in his early state did not advance this political particular view, but he uh, was more properly panentheism. If you remember, if you are a big fan of the Star Wars genre, you'll remember uh, the, the uh, speech of Yoda to Luke Skywalker, that uh, life creates the force, makes it grow, that it is in all the forces in everything. If you change force to God, well, then you get it. God is in everything. He is not the tree, but he is in the tree. He is not the rock, but he is in the rock. We can appreciate this image and perspective in modern storytelling as well. We are instructed on the contrary, if you, there's this version in cinema, to understand the enemy, to understand the darkness, to see that there is good in everybody. I remember Luke and Darth Vader at the end of uh, that, uh, that movie. There's the idea that in uh, society, in everything, there is a seed of good that can be nurtured and grown and developed for the betterment of society. But both of these views suffer from the same deficit. They require that everything that is in creation to be attributed to the will or to the nature of God. This prose poses a significant problem for theodicy. What do you do with evil? If God, if God is the world, or if God is in everything, then evil must therefore necessi necessarily be a part of God's being. But if God is separate from his creation, if God is distinct from his creation, if God has created something into the nothing that wasn't part of him, then that which is part of his creation and the way that it has tr its trajectory in the world may not be... Con totally given to his nature. For God cannot be charged with the iniquity of man. Man sins by doing exactly what he wants to do. James 1, 13 and 14, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. 
Man's problem is not merely that God condemns him to separation from him, but that man willingly chooses to rebel against God. Because you want to rebel. And because of that desire, you without Christ, your position is impossible to change. For my friend, you cannot change your desires. God must change them for you. It's one of the uh, great storytelling images from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. When the boy Eustace becomes more and more like Dragon, Uh, he, he thinks dragon thoughts as Lewis paints this picture. He's living in a dragon cage. He's hoarding dragon gold as he become he becomes used to this life of a dragon. He becomes a dragon himself, and he wants to change, but he can't change. He cannot make, unmake himself a dragon. Neither can we in our own selves unmake the dragonness, the evil, the rebellion that is a part of our hearts. God must do it for us. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. God must do it for you, and this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He delivers you from the addiction to that vanity and frees you to desire God. Jesus is God-made man who died for his people and rose the third day to show life abundant was possible in him. How long will you be addicted to frivolity when everything is yours in Jesus? Will you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from the nothing of sin to the, the abundance of obedience? the majesty of the gospel, and why it is important to maintain this creature-creator distinction is that the God who is distinct from his creation and from humanity and from sinful humanity has attached himself to us in Christ. The creator-creature distinction makes the incarnation marvelous. Only by understanding the great distance between God and his creation that is amplified by sin can the miracle of our reconciliation be seen. It represents the greatest act of condescension when the creator becomes his creation. Not in totality, but when God becomes man. When he becomes man and dies for sinful men. How can we understand this? It ought to boggle our minds because that separation seems too great to be bridged, and yet he does it because of his great love for us. And this is the gospel in Genesis, that the God who created all things and has a plan for all things, that all things play a role in this, that all things are important because God created them and that God will recreate all things as he he planned perfection from the beginning. This is the gospel that God, who is distinct from his creation, will enter into his creation as Jesus to redeem it. That this reality matters because God has entered into it. Consider this, that the substance, the importance of this time-space realm rests not just upon God's creative work, but the fact that he who is its creator entered into it as a man. But not only that, he died to redeem sinful man. The gospel promises us everything in Christ our Redeemer. That that which we 
rejected, that, that which we went away from when we rebelled against him, God is restoring. That that which we have corrupted by our sins, God is restoring and redeeming. The reincarnation reminds us that the distinct God became man, not mankind, but one man, to redeem us, his people. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, it is easy for us to pass over some of the great passages of your word and not consider their importance to us and how foundational they are to us and how they reflect the greatness of your love and your grace to us who were undeserving in the most. Even in our first state in Adam, we did not deserve your condescension. And surely in our sin, we do not deserve the grace that you have shown us in Christ, that you, the Creator, should take upon yourself humanity, a part of that creation, that you might demonstrate your love for your people in dying for us. We pray that we would be struck anew and afresh, that we would let go of everything that we would value over you. That we would not spend our time in vanity, but that we would desire to spend time before you. And wonder of wonders being fulfilled in you. You give us both the possessions and the ability to enjoy them as your good gifts. Fill us with awe at your kindness to us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.